I've been teaching a lot on the fact that anti-racism work for white people is not a space for self-improvement. The point of anti-racism work is to protect black lives. So if everything you do within the anti-racism work is for your benefit, then you're just enhancing white lives. You're not protecting black lives. It's not just a space for you to go to a conference and get a gift bag and take a picture with me and post it on Instagram. Like none of that translates to black lives being protected. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. My name's Carrie Kelly, and have we got a treat for you. Rachel Cargill joins us today for a special live interview. And if you don't know who Rachel is, you must be hiding under a rock because she has become one of the most prominent and provocative voices in intersectional and inclusive feminism. She's a writer, speaker, academic, and activist who uses her platform to speak truth and wake white women up. This conversation is fierce and it's important. And while white folks need to do the work, as Rachel says, it's not really about us. It's about protecting black lives. And so she invites us to consider how we are really showing up and for what purpose. It's not enough to attend an event or post something on social media. Real allyship looks like going to get our people, paying our privilege forward, and listening, really listening to Black women and following their lead. This podcast is going to change everything. Check it out. All right, hello, welcome everyone. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly, and we're having conversations at the intersection of well-being and social justice. We're not afraid to ask hard questions about politics and patriarchy, about white supremacy and worthiness, and today is no exception. We're here with the amazing Rachel Cargill, who is a writer, a speaker, an activist whose work is rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. And you may have heard of her on social media because she reaches over, I think, 200,000 people <laughs> um, each week and really has become a prominent voice um, in the in the intersectional and inclusive feminism. So please help me welcome Rachel Cargill. Thank you. Thank you so much. There's so many people here. I'm super happy that you're you're here. I've been um I've been following. It's such a weird thing to be like I follow you. <laughs> I have to. It's what's even weirder. I have people who DM me like Rachel. I was sitting next to you on the plane, but I was too scared to say something. I'm like, what the fuck was I doing on the plane? Like <laughs> I don't know. It's like it makes me so anxious about what I might have been doing. It's it's probably like a whole other level of like who's watching, Just who's visibility. recognizing me. Yeah, it's very different now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I want to dig right in um, because one of the things I really appreciate is that um, you are relentless in your truth telling. And this is obviously International Women's Month. And I really want to begin um, with the history of women's rights in, in this country, because like with all American history, we seem to have some amnesia 
about how things really went down and how we got here. And a big part of your work, um, and I attended one of your workshops this past weekend, is re-educating women about the real history of feminism in America. And so what is like the real story that we should all be telling about women's liberation in America? Well, I think it's super important not to forget what this country was founded on. It was founded on the white community using the black community to build the wealth that they now have. And that's why it's the greatest nation only on the backs of and the land of and on the work of people of color across across the country, whether it's the black people that they enslaved, the Native Americans that they pushed out of their spaces in order to get their land. Um, it, it continues on today. And so I think that when that that racism is thread throughout every part of our existence because it was the foundation of how the country started. It's not, it didn't dissipate at any point. It didn't happen when Trump got elected. No. Yeah. (laughs) And so there's, you have to be incredibly critical in how you rationalize what's happening because it's not like there was one, it's not like this was 8 million years ago. It's not like it's the dinosaurs and we're like, oh, where where did it all go? Like the racism is still very much here. It just manifests in new ways. And so I teach a lot about modern manifestations of the things that we saw before. So um, that's a lot of work that can be talked about, you know, in the future and on your own time. But I think that it should be clear that even a movement like the feminist movement has those same strains of the racism that this country was built on. It just is, it should be obvious. And so what I teach on in my Unpacking White Feminism lecture that you attended is um, just the ways that often within the feminist movement, um, women's rights always meant white women's rights. If black women benefited from it, then good for them, but it was never intentionally inclusive um, across the board. And if you look at the heroes of the suffrage movement, who, um, when they were going out to campaign, they were obviously campaigning to white men, which were the people who had the power at the time. Um, They were saying things like, if you give women the right to vote, AKA white women, we will uphold white supremacy. They, white women were always aware of what their position was and aware of how they could use it for their agendas. And as the movement continued, if people of color, if women of color benefit from it a little bit, then, you know, it was kind of like the scraps of the movement. It was never intentionally inclusive. And you wrote in this HuffPost piece, um, and I'm going to quote you, no longer will I skirt around topics to make others comfortable, nor will I be apologetic for taking a stance that caters to the two parts of me that need to have a voice. And you just named this, but white women have a history of trading their womanhood for their whiteness. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the 53% of white women who voted for Trump, and it wasn't much better in this last election. Mm-hmm. I think it was 51% of white women voted uh, with the Republican Party. Um, we see it with tone policing. We see it with white tears. So what does it look like for white women to take responsibility of those two parts of themselves? Well, I think it's a really hard pill for white women to swallow that they can both be oppressed by the patriarchy and the oppressor of race there's a space there that you exist in. And so that's something that you need to digest and deal with in a way that should, it shouldn't be too wild of a space to be in because if you have been oppressed, which we all have been by the patriarchy, the patriarchy is literally killing us all. Um, 
and you know that feeling, but you decide to distance yourself from the realities of how you, in your white privilege, oppress people of color, then what that really is, is a disassociation of you really needing to keep any power you can get. And I've been teaching this a lot, and I always say, if your feminism is intended to have equality with white men, then you will automatically be oppressing someone because that's, right. that's the only way men got power. That's right. Is by oppressing full groups, whether it was women or whether it was people of color, um, whether it was poor people. That's the only way. So if you are looking to have this, like, if, if your feminism only is looking to get what men have, to get what white men have, then I don't even want that feminism because it, it automatically means you're going to have to oppress someone. Someone's going to have to be put under the bus in order for you to have any type of power. So look into what the successes of your feminism, of what your feminism is. So if it has to do with who's getting jobs, um, looking at the glass ceiling, if the glass ceiling breaks, I pro right now looking at the way white women function, all that glass is landing on women of color, I promise. Mm -hmm. So you need to consider who's all going together and what your feminism reach is for, because if it's just the type of power that white men have, someone's going to be continuously losing. And it's funny when I, I was having this conversation as I was telling people um, about this event and what we were going to talk about. And someone responded on my Instagram feed, um, not this white woman. <laughs> and then another woman said, not this white woman. And then another woman said, not this white woman. And um, and I've had that feeling too. I've been in spaces where I've been like, oh no, she's not talking to me because I've done this work or that. Or so, um, and, I, I, and I really just feel like I want to stress this because I heard this from you loud and clear this past weekend. It's all white women. It is all of us because regardless of how, um, how woke we are or how well behaved we are um, in these situations, we're all implicated because we all benefit, correct? Well, what I always say is two things. Whenever I go out and speak, and I didn't say it here, but this is not a room full of the good white women and we're talking about everyone else. Like yes. we're, I'm talking to the people in the room and the people you have connections with. But then also, I, I had I had posted something and I had a follower kind of give this uh, description and I, I kind of continue to build on it to make the most sense in the in the way that white privilege is a wheel and every single spoke of the wheel is a white per every single white person is a spoke on the wheel even if one spoke breaks and that's the woke one the wheel's still going you're still mm -hmm. benefiting that's right. so until the entire thing is broken down we have not made the progress necessary to do what this anti-racism work is which is to pre protect black people um and so even as woke as you are as broken of a as a spoke as you are on that wheel, the wheel's still turning and you're still benefiting from it. Whether you are aware of it, your awareness isn't the change. It's a start to it, but you coming to this does not make you an ally. You following me on Instagram does not make you anti-racist. It's the everyday work that makes change in the community. So you being aware, a lot of people go, someone said like, oh, I, I had no idea about all this, Rachel. Now I know, thanks so much. And I'm like, you're cute. But also, like, that's you knowing is the least of things. Because you knowing is what black people have known, people of color have known for their entire lives. So you 
becoming aware is the least of it. And so there's for people to say, you know, well, not me. It is you because you're still rolling on that wheel, even though you, you're one of the broken spokes. And so that so I want to talk about white fragility, because I, I feel like that's often where that emerges. Like we think we know. And then we have this like default reaction of defensiveness or desperation or I mean, often like I find that it's very irrational behavior <laughs> when when women get fragile and just to kind of like um, bring everybody into this conversation. Um, um, Robin D'Angelo coined the term white fragility to describe the disbelieving defensiveness that white people exhibit when their ideas about race and racism are um, challenged and particularly and this is what you were just naming when they feel implicated in white supremacy. Um, and I know that you're fielding white fragility all day long um, in your social media all day. All day. Um, so can you can you give folks an idea of like what white fragility looks like in action? Right. Because because <laughs> you're right. It's not just enough to have the words or the perfect post, but it's it's how we behave. It's how we show up. It's how we respond. It's what we do every day. Yeah. Well, looking at the idea of white fragility, it's really interesting because I get the most fragile reactions. And I want everyone to know when I say I, I am not speaking on behalf of black women, but I'm representative of a lot of experiences of black women. So it's not just me when I'm saying I, I'm I'm speaking to experiences that I know happen to a lot of other black women. So take it as someone, a black woman you might know might be experiencing this as well. But it, it's usually the people who are who seem to be most interested in this conversation that show the most fragility because they are so desperate to be one of the good ones. They're so desperate to be seen as one of the good ones that they will do anything necessary to have the affirmation of that marg I'll just say that marginalized group because this this looks this way across across the um, across a lot of marginalized spaces. But it's all rooted in two two things. It's either rooted in ego. Like, I don't want to feel like I don't know things. And in order for me to move through the world the way I want to feel, I'm going to pretend like my feelings matter more than a person's experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, I've been teaching a lot on the fact that anti-racism work for white people is not a space for self-improvement. Mm -hmm. Like, you showing up to these spaces is not for you to be able to go home and sleep better tonight, knowing that you sh like came to listen to a black girl talk. The point of anti-racism work is to protect black lives. So if nothing you do, if everything you do within the anti-racism work is for your benefit, then you're just enhancing white lives. You're not protecting black lives. So consider how you're really showing up. Consider how you're really coming into spaces to actually protect and use your, pay your privilege forward, as Brittany Packnett says, paying your privilege forward in order to ensure that actual black lives are being protected. And it's not just a space for you to go to a conference and get a gift bag and take a picture with me and post it on Instagram. Like none of that translates to black lives being protected. So consider how that looks. And I often I, I do workshops when I tour. And um, one thing I do is that I have everyone in the room tell me it's usually a room full of white women. Um, that's what my all out of my 205,000 followers, probably about 200 of them are white women, 200,000 of them are white women. And um, so in my workshops, I say 
tell me why you came. Like, why did you pay money to talk about race? And I have everyone go around the room and everyone, it's usually a mix of, I started dating, I started dating someone of color and so I want to be able to show up for them. Or I moved into a neighborhood and there's like black kids there and I want to make sure I'm showing up for them. Or um, I read your, a friend shared your work and I saw that you were coming to my city and so I wanted to show up. And so I let everyone go through and I take tally of what people are saying. And at the end, I say, wow, not one person said they are showing up for black lives. Mm-hmm. Not one person says. Maybe in, in all of my in all of my workshops, maybe like three or four people in all of the cities have said, I saw a black man die and the police go like unsentenced. I saw the way that little black boy, you know, got harassed at that bodega in Brooklyn and that white woman had no consequences. So I encourage you to consider, and the thing is black people have been dying from police brutality, from medical racism, from the variety of things that happen in this country for years. So it's not like there's any new material for you to stumble upon to care all of a sudden. So you caring all of a sudden, you coming to this this moment, which a lot of white women say it's from the election, um, in which that shows us that they didn't care about all of us until they were personally affected. But also, um, consider why you show up and who's being protected in each time you're coming and saying that you're doing anti-racism work. Because if you're willing to come to my lecture, but you're not willing to say anything to your racist uncle at the dinner table, then you might as well not come to my lecture. I feel like this is a really important point because I know um, that often the interactions on your social feed, like, get people fired up right and and that's particularly because white folks white women in particular um are used to being taken care of mm-hmm. all the time so they don't like the feeling of fragility or being defensive um and that's just white supremacy at work but like what i'm hearing you say and so i like one of the things i really appreciate about your feed um and it really does feel like a gift to white folks and white women that you are so revealing of your truth can I speak on that really quickly? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have to remind people that my work is very white facing. Oh, hey, Destiny. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> my work is, sorry. <laughs> my work is very, very white facing, but the work that I do is for the black community. That's right. So I get that all the time. Like, Rachel, thank you so much. And I'm like, this isn't for you. And my goal in all of my work the, the best compliment I've ever gotten after a lecture is a black girl who came up to me and said, wow, I have never been in a room full of white people and felt so comfortable. Like, that's what I do and who I do it for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so coming into and that's why the work is so hard mm-hmm. and it's so exhausting and it's so mentally straining because I'm not where I want to be. Mm-hmm. which is usually in a room full of women of color, which is where I feel safest and most heard and most loved and most taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I do this work, I have to constantly think in my head, you know, like, what is this for? Because when I speak to white women, hopefully the black, per- I'm doing it for the black person at their job. I'm doing it for the black person that their kid's playing with. I'm doing it for the black lady at the PTA who's not being heard. So that's who it's for. And I want that to be, known and clear and understood that even though my work is white facing 
the work that I do is for my community of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was going to be the second part of of my my point because um, I know a lot of people are like, why can't you say it nicer? Mm-hmm. Um, why, right? Like, why does it have to be so combative? Um, and I think a lot of people refer to it as like the call out culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I hear you talk, I'm thinking like people are fucking dying. Right. Right. Yeah. People are fucking dying, yeah. and yeah. it doesn't matter how you get the message. If it's polite, if you feel like it's in a trusting environment, we get a lot yeah. of this in like the wellness yeah. community, like. There's oh not gosh. enough trust here. And so therefore we can't have a hard conversation. It's like, who fucking cares? Yeah. Like, like sit back and listen to the message that you need to hear because people are dying. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, there have been spaces in which white women felt they needed a safe space to talk about race. White women will never need, white women are never unsafe in the conversation of race. That's right. Ever. They are, that's like a bunch of men saying, we need to get away from women now and figure out a safe way to talk about feminism. <laughs> like that's irrational. That's right. And it's ridiculous. It also, and it also perpetrates the idea that black women are dangerous. Like we, if, you're, if we're in your space, we're dangerous and white women need a safe space. So that's that. Well, and, <laughs> and, and it feels like it's also about um, accountability. Yeah. Right. Like, 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 like we need to be fierce, Mm -hmm. um, in our truth telling and in our confrontation because we actually need accountability and that's not a bad thing. It's the most necessary thing. Yeah. I had a teacher once who said, um, I hold you accountable because I value what you do. Like I, Mm -hmm. like we need you. And that like changed my whole perspective Mm -hmm. on what accountability is. But we do like, we do demonize accountability, I think in our culture all the time and nobody Mm -hmm. wants to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to create content that matters for citizens who care. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have a radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our Patreon community for as little as $1 per month, You get lots of good stuff from us, like radical meditations, community forums, and lifestyle content that you can trust. Not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. So check us out on patreon.com slash citizenwell and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. So um, I heard you speaking this weekend about decolonizing intellect. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about decolonizing wellness. Please do. Uh, because <laughs> that's the domain that we operate in. And I think a lot of people here probably have some relationship to wellness. Um, and the wellness culture has been like effectively indoctrinated into the ideology of white supremacy, capitalism, individual. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But the way in which um, mainstream wellness culture is showing up is doing more harm than helping, I think, yeah. in many ways. Um, and you have this great quote um, that I think has gone viral. Um, I don't want your love and light if it doesn't come with solidarity and action. And so what does, um, in your perspective, what does decolonizing wellness look like? 
I'm gonna grab my wine for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Let's all just adjust. <laughs> Everybody get comfortable. Um, <laughs> So I wouldn't say that I exist in the wellness space. Like I, I'm not up in those conversations. Um, there are a lot of incredible black women who are in those conversations doing that work. And I encourage you to uh, go into their spaces and learn from them to have more of a perspective about decolonizing the wellness space in particular, because they would know more than I know. But I do know a few things. <laughs> um, I want us to really consider the idea of wellness and the idea of health and the idea of a person's autonomy in taking care of their bodies and feeling good in their bodies and how white supremacy is latched on to controlling that and deciding who gets that, who gets to feel it or not. And I'm gonna take it all the way back to the continent of Africa in which so much colonization happened. And I took a course um, last semester and we were talking about decolonizing things like motherhood, decolonizing womanhood, decolonizing areas of our existence that we don't even consider. We talked about decolonizing like domesticity, the fact that in Africa, a lot of people in different, in, in various countries in Africa, they eat with their hands. And that's just like a normal ass thing to do there. But colonizers came in and made school children learn how to eat with forks mm -hmm. and spoons in order to to decide how they existed in the world. And so even things as little as how we eat at a table is part of white people coming into spaces and saying, what we do is deemed civilized and what you do is deemed not. And that's what we think. So when you see someone eat with their hands, they're like, what are you doing? But that's absolutely normal and like dignitaries do it in various countries. So consider where colonization comes into those. But particularly, I, just to take an example, and then you all can think critically and go beyond and do your own research into other ways that this has happened, but particularly around, um, and which is a big thing in the wellness world, looking at birth, giving birth, and how privileged you have to be to have a doula. Like you really have to be privileged to have a midwife or a doula. But in these countries that were colonized, that was the norm. And these were people of color that the older women would be birthing their chil the children. And then white people came in and said, no, you have to use our hospitals. And what they ended up doing is that they would train younger girls in order to push out the older women who were actually birthing the children. So they were like controlling the culture. So no longer could older women be doing it. They got younger women who they could now teach whatever they wanted to teach to them to move, to move them out of the space. So think about how wild it is that they took something away from people of color and now we have to pay and we don't even have access to it. And so I want you to consider what that looks like across the board. How much is your yoga class? How, how much is the class that you're taking? And can the actual people of color from the origin countries of yoga come and afford to take what they have fucking gifted you with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much that people of color gift Western culture only for them to commercialize it and make it out of reach. So consider how so much of what you have, even something as much as like fruit water, like the, the fruit that you can like put into the water that you can buy it now at like Whole Foods for $8. Like why is someone who immigrated here from Jamaica not able to get the type of water that they could make at their house? 
Like it's so wild that there's this there's this grip from white supremacy and from capitalism onto everything they can in order to make and everything that they can find to benefit them, I should say. That's right. Um, and they're they're literally ripping it away. And now it's like if there's a little, you know, a little girl from India who can't afford a yoga class, she's shunned, even though it's probably part of her culture, 100%. So consider how white people in this room are thriving off of a culture that was stolen and commercialized and people who gifted it to you, that you value it so much, it was a gift to you, they don't even have access to it. And so I think, I'm gonna propose this for the first time ever, Yes. If you're taking a yoga class, if you can't afford for you and a person of color to donate it, then don't take it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you can't afford to gift it to someone else, because that whole culture was a gift to you. Yes. If you can't gift it to the people of color who have been oppressed in this country, who gifted it to you, then don't take it. You can't afford it. Mm-hmm. That's an exclusive. <laughs> you heard it here first, people. <laughs> Um, I also think about how powerful the images are um, that we advertise and distribute of like what wellness looks like, who yeah. gets to do it, um, um, body types, um, race, sexual orientation, gender, um, and and how much we have to untangle and dismantle mm-hmm. those images too um, so that we can actually like send a message that other people are, are welcome yeah. in their own way, you know? Yeah. I think we have a way of like telling people like 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 prescribing wellness like it needs to look like this. It's a you roll out your yoga mat and you drink a green juice and you drive a hybrid. I mean like that's the like well that's under- all capitalism. Exactly. I want you to buy this in order to make you feel good, obviously. But cap- capitalism is inherently racist because of just the way that it's set up and the fact that if speaking as a black woman, our our culture was enslaved in order for you to have the wealth that you have. That's right. And just consider what that looks like and it's thriving off of a culture that's telling us like that we're not good enough and we have to do all the uh, all the things all the things to feel whole yeah we I mean which is bullshit yeah my friend Dana Sukau um she taught me and I think about it all the time and she she probably got it from somewhere or maybe she thought about it herself um this idea like whenever you're feeling bad about yourself like who's profiting off of this so like when I feel bad that I didn't shave my legs and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have before a trip, like, oh my gosh, I have to go. I have to go buy a razor. I have to go buy this. Like, why are people profiting off of how I feel about my natural body hair? Or if you feel fat and you're like, oh, well, I have to go do this and I have to go do this. I have to buy this. Like who's profiting off of how you feel about your body? And think about that every single time you have a hurtful feeling about how who you are or how you feel. Um, just consider who's profiting off of it and be like, okay, well, you're not getting any of my time, money, or thoughts, and then go on with your day. <laughs> I think even when you're having a, a good feeling, I mean, to me, like yeah. that's that's one of the uh, you were saying before, like go back and and do research and mm-hmm. inquire. But part of like I feel like what we need to do, um, especially as like those of us who are associated with dominant culture, white mm-hmm. folks, uh, cisgender, straight, mm-hmm. um, need to be in interrogating ourselves every freaking mm-hmm. day yeah. on like who benefits yeah. how am i benefiting yeah. who At is the this cost of who, someone who else. is this harming yeah. right yeah on yeah. who's back yeah and I, I feel like the only way to get to a place of like clarity is to actually ask that question like 
every minute like, and every not just day. in your head like out loud yeah like ask it out loud to the owner like I was recently I'm, I'm having a friend visit and um I was looking at spas and I was like oh let's just go to the spa part of the wellness world we can talk about that or I was like oh let's go to the spa but he's a transgender man and I was like they're going to make us separate and go to different like gender-based bathrooms before we get into the spa and I just like I melted because I'm like I can't go to this like we can't like do we have to have this turmoil within ourselves before going to the spa mm -hmm. and I asked I mean that's a privilege that I have mm -hmm. that I don't I never had to think about that I can go anywhere and the idea of having to go into a changing room doesn't affect me one bit but it really affects people and how they show up and whether they even want to go to a place because they have to explain themselves or have fear of how other people will take them and so even in my own privileges I have to be asking the questions out loud make myself incredibly uncomfortable call up the spa Yes. and say like what the fuck yes. like you're about to lose money because people are feeling uncomfortable in a space that's supposed to be ultimate comfort um so that's the paradox out loud like say these agitate your job is to add your job is to re realize where your privilege is and use it to agitate every single system that you have the privilege in because as a black woman who's agitating the white supremacy i'm going the people the marginalized people are going to agitate because they have to to survive and so your job is to do it every single to chance choose, you get to, to choose, choose to, to do, do it. it. Yeah. Because we have the privilege of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about so-called allyship. My friend, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams calls it so-called allyship mm -hmm. because um, so much of allyship has become performative, right? Like proving and saying the right thing and putting the perfect meme out. And I mean, you were already naming a lot of those things mm -hmm. um, that kind of desperation to be like, the the one who knows yeah. <laughs> and making sure everybody else knows that, knows you, that know. you know yeah. um but it does feel like ultimately um allyship is about relationship like authentic relationship learning how to be in relationship um learning learning how to like locate yourself socially in relationship learning how to get get out of the way um so I, i'd love for you to like share like what how allyship shows up in your so-called allyship mm -hmm. show, or, or relate or authentic relationship across lines of difference show, shows up in your life like what does it look like yeah what it looks like well I want to talk on the so-called allyship and I still use the word allyship, but I am happy to share the way a lot of other um, activists of color have showed up to have this conversation and saying, we don't need allies. We need accomplices. Yes. Like we don't need someone to be our friend. We need someone to be like breaking down the system with us. So it's not an, it's just like the same conversation. It's not enough to just be not racist. You have to be actively anti-racist or you're complicit in the system that's it like there's no other options so there's no real need for allies because we just don't want a lot of people saying we see you we hear you we need people saying we're here to keep you alive we're here to ensure your family gets an education we're here to ensure you eat we're here to ensure you have opportunity so consider um that so i will use the word allyship but i really want you to start using allyship and accomplish accomplice mm -hmm. interchangeably mm -hmm. um but my so how it shows up well let me let me go back my equation for allyship is knowledge plus empathy plus action mm -hmm. If you take any one of those out, you're either doing it for your ego. You're, this is either a self-help space for you or you're uh, it's either for your ego or it's for like self-help. So consider 
how you're showing up. If you're doing something without knowledge, if you're not like actually learning the history of these people, and you're not actually doing research and you're not actually trying to have a intellectual understanding of their existence in the world, because I promise you, your entire education has been whitewashed. So you really don't know. And so unless you're knowing and you're only doing something off of how you feel and then taking action, then that's you just want to feel better. So you really need to learn about them. And if you're just and if you're intellectualizing only and then taking action, you cannot intellectualize the experiences of people of color. It's 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 not an academic space. It's an actual real live space that people are existing in. So if you're only feeling like, well, I've studied like all of the white African-American studies professors, like I've studied black people and I know what they experience. And then they then they try to take action without picking up the empathy part, then what they're really doing is like hardcore fucking colonizing. Mm -hmm. Like I know what you need, so I'm going to take action without picking up the empathy part of the equation to say, I, I know what's happening, now tell me what you need and how can I take action on behalf of you? So consider you need knowledge plus empathy plus action. So how this shows up, and it's something that I talked about in Bend, Oregon, where she saw me speak, is that so one of the spaces is I have um, I have white I have lots of white friends and there are times when they'll call me and be like hey Rachel we're having this event and they'll say but I just want you to know you'll pr you'll probably be the only black person in the room if you come here so let me know if you want to come mm -hmm. so just being aware of how I exist in the world and the fact that I rarely want to be in a place where I'm the only black person in the room or if I'm having an event or a part like say I have like a sleepover and I post it on Instagram I don't feel any feelings about how my white friends are going to feel seeing me with all with all my black friends because they know that's what I need so they don't have fragility around like I thought I was your friend I thought like we were all the same and I could come to your party like no you know that I that I need to be in black spaces and so that's how those are very practical ways that it yeah. that it shows that's up. helpful yeah in 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 the ways that my white friends interact with me um but also all the way to you know how people are voting <laughs> regular regular allyship but um it's like i said if your work isn't centering black lives then it's not anti-racism work it's i want to feel better about how i happen to be born work and we don't need that mm-hmm what about mistake making and repair? Um, and I've heard you say like white folks can't move move through the world and and be afraid to make a mistake, and so they don't engage or they silence themselves. But when mistakes happen, what does repair look like? I encourage well, I encourage everyone to consider in a question like this, reframing it with men and feminism. Mm -hmm. So if a man makes a mistake and he does something incredibly misogynistic, like how could he repair? Like I'm interested to know your answer. How could he repair? Yeah, like if he did something incredibly like incredibly hurtful to the community of women that he's part of. Um, so I would um, imagine that he would take responsibility for it and name it um, and maybe ask questions like, how did this feel <laughs> or I may have done something wrong or um, give me feedback or I, I want feedback. So there's some kind of like responsibility taking and self accountability, I would say. Um, and then I would say an apology. But even that doesn't feel like enough. Then I feel like practice continuing to like navigate doing the right thing um, and continuing to take responsibility for mistakes and continuing to build um, relationship and showing up as a reflection of accompliship. 
essentially. So that's the answer. Okay. <laughs> that was tricky, Rachel. <laughs> um, I've heard you say that um, we need new heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about this also in like the, the, the feminist movement, how we, we've heard a lot um, about Susan B. Anthony mm-hmm. and um, Carrie Chapman Cat and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but we don't hear as much about Sojourner Truth and Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells. Um, and it's not surprising that that the, the, those women have been erased from our history. Um, and that's not historical. I mean, that happens even today. And we were with Tarana Burke this weekend, right? And she tells a story about, right, like how she was almost erased from mm-hmm. the Me Too movement mm-hmm. um, and how it took a lot of people being like, wait up. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, and I know this is a part of your definition of intersectional feminism, mm-hmm. but um, what is, how do, how do we like co-create a new story that centers black women, new heroes, um, um, lives on the margins and like really like um, invites white people to like get out of the way is basically. Yeah, I think that, and I do this, I make a post every so often where I challenge people to think like, looking at the books you've read this year, who writes them? Like if you've read only books written by white people, you're putting yourself in this like white warped space again than what has already been taught to you. Like whose music are you listening to? Whose books are you reading? What movies are you seeing? What equals valid? What what means something's valid to you? And that's part of, so I've I've realized that a pillar of my work is decolonizing intellect. And that also goes into this idea and I'm writing a book right now and I'm working right now on the chapter called Your Heroes Are Not My Heroes, Mm -hmm. where we're really digging into our understanding of who gets celebrated and why. Um, Even aside from the incredible women like Mary Church Terrell, um, Anna Julia Cooper, those women, along with like the normal people we sometimes hear about Sojourner Truth or Mm -hmm. Ida B. Wells, even who do we deem as a valid source of knowledge today? Who do we deem as a valid entertainer today? Um, is it, or even let's, let's talk about the Oscars. Who, what do we deem as valid until you're like awarded by a group of white people? Right. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? And so we need to, I'm deciding and we need to decide who our heroes are because we definitely don't have a Malcolm X day. We have a Martin Luther King day who he was deemed super peaceful and that's why. And like he was, he was the which one. Which he wasn't entirely. Which he wasn't entirely. That too was so whitewashed. That too was whitewashed. But if you really look into who gets chosen to be cared about and why they're chosen, really look into who gets to be valid in this country and why. And you'll see that it all pours into the white supremacist agenda. That of course they choose Martin. Like he was super, he was the one saying, why don't we all join He was hands? palatable. He was palatable. Of course he'd have a day just to like honor the civil rights, which really didn't manifest into anything super concrete today. And so looking at who your heroes are, who yourself, who you celebrate, who's valid. Um, it, it goes into who are you reading? Who are you? Who feels valid to you? And even even taking it away from heroes, taking it down to like human to human perspective, Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, um, Between the World and Me, which is required reading in my world, now that I have like a class or anything, but <laughs> um, 
he says that one of the most tragic things about humanity is that white people really think they're white. They think that their whiteness means something. Mm -hmm. That's right. They really, truly do. Like they walk through the world. Even they, if they don't see it. Even if they don't see it, they they rec they exist with some type of hierarchy based on their skin color. When if we think about it, like the people who started, they could have chosen anything. They could have chosen height. They could have chosen hair color. Like they could have chosen anything, but they chose white skin and white skin people actually think that it materializes into something meaningful as, as in hierarchy of existence. And white people are not the default of existence. White people, I, in, in, in decolonizing intellect, in decolonizing heroes, white people are not the knowers and everything else is to be known. That's how the world works now. That white, like in, in academia, in the world, yes. white people are, discover things. Shit was existing before white people laid eyes on it. <laughs> like they didn't, why are we talking about people being discovered? Do you know how supremacist that is? That you are the center of existence and you get to go out and find the rest of the world and then it, it, it only exists after you've discovered it? That's some crazy shit that like, that you really think that. And if you think even the, as I'm getting more into the academy and I'm learning so much that like every canon of every field of work is filled with white people, mostly white men. And that is honored as the understanding, the theory of that field. And so within all of our education, white people are the brains and everyone else either gets to learn from them or they're going out. We have like African-American studies, we have like Asian studies and every, every other culture gets to be picked apart and scrutinized. Who's picking apart and scrutinized how white people exist? Because they're, they, are, they understand themselves as the default. And it's wild, it's absolutely wild. So that's that. So that's that. Um, I just want to point out that you do have a social syllabus on um, your website. Um, and you do have a class. It's called Instagram, and we're all in it. So, um, so what is the other required reading in our class? Teacher Cargill, <laughs> Professor Cargill, tell us. Well, like I said, ta Coates Between the World and Me um, completely kind of shook up the way that I understood a lot of things. Um, you really need to pull from, um, you know, right before I came here, I ran into Brittany Cooper. Mm. <laughs> and I was like- Like literally outside? Like, lit no, not outside, well, oh. on the way here. I was at a co-working space and she was there and I ran into her and I was like, so hyped. <laughs> Like I was thinking out of all the celebrities I've seen walking through New York City, I literally like, really cool. did a cartwheel to Britney, like, hi, Dr. Cooper. And, <laughs> and I, like, and she's like, who are you? <laughs> so anyways, read her work. I hope this makes up for the way I ambushed her earlier today. <laughs> um, Dr. Britney Cooper, um, Imani Perry, mm -hmm. she writes a lot of incredible work. Um, I encourage you, whatever field you're in, Google black innovators in this field mm -hmm. and you will find some people who are doing incredible work that you probably have never heard of because they don't get cited and they don't get put into things. But I promise you, they're probably create developing knowledge for your field. So look into that and consider who those are because even I'm speaking from the space of black women who are doing like race-based work, but 
that's not the only people you should listen to the black women talking about race you also need to listen to the black woman engineer you need to listen to the black woman artist you need to listen to the black woman teacher like it's not just the people who are out here on the front lines doing the work whose voices are valid in this space every single black woman is a fucking expert in this and if you're not listening to her, if you're only listening to me, a light skinned, Ivy League educated, well written, well spoken, super cute black girl, then like you're only listening to me because you find me palatable. It's just like when men only listen, think only think the women they're attracted to are like valid. If you're not listening to the women you're not attracted to, then you're not really listening to women. Yes. And if you're only paying attention to the black women you find interesting or you find palatable, then you're not really listening to black people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've had like the wildest t- two years ever. It hasn't even been two years. It's literally been like nine months. <laughs> um, since uh, the Women's March, your picture went viral. Yes, that yes, that was two years. You all know that picture, right? <laughs> of right. I mean, everybody's yes. seen that picture. I'm sure like bajillions of people have seen that picture. Um, so that goes viral. You're in school at the time. You're a nanny at the time. I'm a nanny at the time. Yeah. And then what happens? Because you're 205,000 Instagram um, people later. Yeah. Like how I mean, did that unfold for you and how did you navigate that? I'm still learning how to navigate it. Um, yeah. When that photo went viral, I think I had like 2000 followers and then, um, I kind of all of a sudden, like my face and my feminism was kind of like in the front of my existence. And I had to talk about it a lot more because people were associating me with that photo. Mm-hmm. And so me, I'm not going to show up without a depth of knowledge of where I'm showing up. And so I started doing my own research and, um, I wasn't in school yet, but, um, I, I was nannying. And so I had kind of more time and more like brain space to kind of do this research. And I was like watching videos and I was, you know, like thinking more critically about my own experiences and as a feminist, as a black woman. And this was the first time I was bringing them together. So really these last two years have just been me fusing these two parts of myself and how I'm showing up in both of those spaces. Um, And so that was, that was one of the big things is when the photo went viral, I just had a bunch of conversations that I had to have with myself, with uh, my white friends, with my ancestors, with, um, other people other black women in my community and I'm like where are we situated here Mm -hmm. and so then I just kind of started speaking as I learned like talking on it and writing about it as I went and um I just started building a following who was like listening going on this journey of like learning with me and then um what really kind of boosted things was in July of last year um, I got in an argument with a white woman on Instagram and it, the, our, pretty much our interaction went pretty viral. Is that the Nia Wilson? Yeah. Um, so I made a post, I made a post that said, where are all the white feminists now that Nia Wilson's died? And I told, I told my followers, I said, tag your favorite feminist and ask her why she hasn't mentioned it. <laughs> and it caused a shit show of grand proportions um, of, of it. Well, it, it caused a shit show of white fragility but really, really did. It gave me all the teaching material I could ever need. Like everything, like That's it was right. textbook of everything I had been teaching and learn and talking about and learning about. And so after that happened, I think I, I think like my following, I think a lot of white women who followed that woman and you can go to my Instagram page and there's a whole highlight on it. But I think that it came up that people were, re- that was the first time they were coming up against that conversation. Like they had never really considered 
how their white feminism played into race relations in the country. And I think I got like 40,000 followers that weekend of like white women, like, wait, I never thought about this. I never considered this. And I started just developing more content around that conversation. And I think in June I had like 10 K followers and I have 202 now. And it's just like people coming in, like part of the conversation, part of the conversation. And so even my, with my lecture tour, it's all been just people on the ground saying we need you here to have this conversation with our community. And so like they connect with my assistant and they get everything together. So it's been very much so a, I always say when I come into spaces, I'm here in conversation and in community because that's how we're all showing up in order to start talking. And then my little Brown fingers can be crossed that it will lead to more action. And I think it has. I mean, like just knowing who I know that knows you, um, your words are resonating. Your teaching is resonating. Like people are listening and watching you for a reason. um, And it's really helpful. Um, You asked this question to Tarana. And so I want to ask it of you. Oh, don't. I'm going to cry. Go. (laughs) Um, Knowing what you know now, what would you say to your younger self? To my younger self, I would say your words are powerful. Um, I always was a right. I always wrote. I always enjoyed it. And I always um, it felt very wispy, like what I was writing didn't really mean anything. Um, And so I would I would definitely tell my younger self that writing is part of my power. Um, So I would I would probably encourage that. And I also would just say, like dig into your curiosity, like keep, like go even for, I was always a very curious kid. Mm-hmm. Um, even like my, my application essay to Columbia was all about how the university would benefit from my curiosity. Like that's why they should bring me nice. in. And so like, I, even though I, d- I wish I could just dug more, like read more crazy books that no one else was picking mm-hmm. up, like demanded more critical conversation from like my mom and my friends. Like what I was like, can we, I remember being young and being like, I've learned about the cycle of poverty and we need to talk about this. Like just like pushing more critical conversation with people who didn't want to be part of it, but realizing that it was always important to me. Mm -hmm. So just tell myself to like go deeper. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad. I mean, clearly like you've had that, um, seed because, Mm -hmm. um, after the women's March, you went deeper Mm -hmm. and you could have opted out you could have went back to your life you could have just followed along and you it feels like to me that you just pulled out all the stops and leaned in and um and I know that um I don't know this from personal experience being like a white woman but I know that choosing to do the work that you do um um especially given the like fact that you spar with white fragility every day on your social media feed must be really intense um, I mean, that's not just like an intellectual thing. That's like direct. It's real. It can be violent at times. And so I just want to like acknowledge you. Yeah, I think that I always say with this work, I didn't put up a sign that said 200,000 white women come follow me. Let's talk about race. <laughs> like I didn't call on this. So I have to assume it's my work. Like nothing about how I existed in the world was like, I definitely wasn't a little girl like I'm going to grow up and talk about race (laughs) and, you know, my race and my womanhood. It wasn't something that I did. But I think that now that I'm in this space, I am recognizing how different gifts that I have all lend to this. Mm -hmm. And so it's been an incredible experience to feel purposeful 
and feel like on a path that's meaningful um, because I recognize that everyone, not everyone gets to be in that space at, in, at one point in life or another. Um, but also, like I said, it's so deeply meaningful when I have 16 year old black girls say, I didn't know I could talk to white people like that. I'm like, girl, talk to them like that. You were saying before <laughs> that um, you didn't choose to, to work with white women, but here you are. Um, and that um, if, um, if your vision was realized, mm -hmm. right? Like your community, your mm -hmm. spaces would look really different. Like what is your vision for our future? Like how will you know you've been successful? What will it look like? It'll look like a deep ringing in my ears of black girls. It'll look like voices of black women and girls just being wildly heard. Um, not just spoken, but heard. Not just like existing, but heard. And like, I just want to be overwhelmed by the voices of black girls who are demanding what they deserve and what they're not accepting anymore and what they're expecting of the world and what yes. they want in terms of existing. And I always say I have a deep commitment to making white people uncomfortable. Like that's my work right now is like going throughout the country and making white people uncomfortable. And I hope that I just have like an army of black girls behind me making white people uncomfortable. I have I have very little hope that much will change in my generation, um, just going off of how things have progressed. But I do believe that with social media, which is such an interest, I can't wait to read academic work on social media now yeah. and like activism and organizing and things like that but I just hope my my dream and my hope by the time I'm like 70 years old releasing a, another book and like getting to go out to universities and lecture is for me to have like a room full of black girls who are like this is what we've been saying. This is what we've been doing. This is why this university has you like a deep ringing in my ears of black girls was my dream. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> Everyone, Rachel Cargill. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to do the work, not to simply engage with it on social media, but to put your privilege on the line and take a risk. You can follow Rachel on Instagram at rachel.cargill and check out her website at rachelcargill.com to attend a lecture and download her social syllabus on how to be an ally to black women. Thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. 